Welcome to Repros Fight Back, a podcast where we explore all things reproductive health rights and justice. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and I'll be helping you stay informed around issues like birth control, abortion, sex education, and LGBTQ issues, and much, much more, giving you the tools you need to take action and fight back. Okay, let's dive in. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Repros Fight Back. I'm your host, Jenny Wetter, and my preferred pronouns are she, her. So I cannot believe it is mid-July. I'm not really sure how that happened. This year has gone so fast. And again, it's that mix of the days are taking forever and this year has gone so fast, but like, When I think back to things that happened in like early March or even thinking back to being back in Wisconsin for the holidays, it feels so long ago. It's just this year has been a real whirlwind. And I know things probably aren't going to change anytime soon, at least in my situation of working from home and working remotely. This week, you know, I've known. I've known we're not coming back anytime soon. There's like the knowing and then the like, you hear for sure, you're probably not going to be back in the office before 2021. And it's just wild to think that there's so many people that I'm not going to see. It's going to be like a year since I've seen them when we actually can get together in person again. It's really weird to think about. And I know thinking like when the next time I'm going to see my family is, you know, I was hoping to be able to go home in August to go to the celebration of life for my grandma who had passed away this summer. But now I can't imagine traveling right now. It seems impossible. And then thinking like we could be in another big wave over the holidays. So It's just really weird to think about not being home for the holidays. My family is really, really big. So while I'm an only child, so it's just me and my parents for the holidays, my mom is from a very large family. So every year we get together on Christmas Eve and she's one of 11. So we rent out a hall for all of us to get together. And it's the one time of year that like all the aunts and uncles and cousins their kids and now even their kids get together every year. And to think about not being there feels really weird. You know, there's things that like when I moved away from home, like were really weird, like the first couple times they happened. Same with my mom's side of the family. Every year, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, the aunts and the cousins get together and make a literal shit ton of holiday cookies. Like, there are no words to describe how much baking is done that day, and it's so much fun. And I really missed it the first couple years, and I still miss it. Like, it's still sad to see, like, all the pictures, but my mom always sends me, like, a huge box or two of cookies, so it's kind of like being there, but not. But so this will be, like, the second Christmas I've ever missed if I can't go home. And the last one we missed was because of really terrible weather. Like, it was a really bad ice storm. So 
me and my parents didn't drive up to where the rest of the family is. And that was very bizarre to do. And to think of not being there this year, not even being in Wisconsin, is really weird. More and more looking at the world right now, that's where it feels like it's going. It makes me sad. I hope that's not true, but, you know, I have to stay here if it makes the most sense. I can't put my family's health at risk by flying home or traveling home. So that's where my head is at right now. I guess I didn't realize that until it all just came spilling out. So thanks for letting me share, y'all. I guess yesterday it just hit me when I saw that the Washington Post was saying they probably weren't going to be back in their offices till at least 2021. And we had that same conversation then with our office. And I guess that just while I was talking to y'all made me think of all of the rest of the things through the end of the year that I'm not going to be able to do that I normally do and love to do. So let's all do our parts. Make sure that things change. So make sure you're wearing a mask when you go out. I definitely do. And wash your hands frequently and make sure to, you know, protect those the most at risk and being safe. So with that, let's just switch gears and talk about our special bonus episode today. So something really exciting happened yesterday. There was a proactive abortion bill introduced in the House. I'm not going to spoil it and tell you all about it yet because we're going to talk about it in the episode. But it's a big deal. It's the first time that this particular bill has been introduced, and we are all very excited to tell you all about it. So joining me today to talk about the problem, which is the Helms Amendment and this new bill, I'm really excited to have with me today Anu Kumar with IPASS. It was a great conversation, and we talked all about Helms and what it means and about this new bill. So I hope you all enjoy the conversation and are energized to take action. Hi, Anu. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, do you want to do a quick introduction and include your preferred pronouns? Sure. My name is Anu Kumar. I'm president and CEO of IPASS, and my preferred pronouns are she and her. I am really excited to talk about the Helms Amendment today. But before we get started, we should probably do a little bit of background so people know the landscape we're talking about before we start. So do you maybe want to talk a little bit about what does abortion access look like in the Global South right now? Right. Okay. So let's first start off maybe putting it into a global context. You know, abortion is a very common medical procedure that's used throughout the world. There are over 55 million abortions that take place every year around the world, and about 25 million or so are unsafe abortions. So the definition of unsafe abortion also varies. It's a World Health Organization definition, and it's been changing a bit over time to accommodate the way women are now seeking abortions. But 55 million abortions that means that there are quite a lot of abortions that are taking place every year. and the majority of the unsafe abortions that take place are actually taking place in the global south. So sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia make the bulk of those abortions. In many of those places, but certainly not all, access to abortion is difficult. So it's hard for women who want to end an unwanted pregnancy to actually find their way to a safe abortion. In many situations, Women and young women in particular have a hard time accessing contraception. And so, you know, accessing effective means of contraception 
is obviously a good way of preventing pregnancy. But without that, it means that many women do rely on abortion to prevent pregnancy. So what that means in the global south is often that women are going to providers who aren't really trained and aren't actually, you know, medically qualified to provide an abortion, or they are doing it on their own, which can be safe, but they may not have all the support that they need. So I'll give you, you know, examples. Young women in particular are especially vulnerable. They often don't have, you know, the resources or the information to deal with an unintended pregnancy. They often don't have access to contraception. So when they find themselves in a situation where they have an unwanted pregnancy, they don't know how to handle it. They don't know where to go. And they often delay seeking care because they're really just kind of amassing resources, financial, informational, and other resources to figure out what to do. So in our work, you know, at IPASS, we've heard stories of young women who have used ingesting ground glass to end the pregnancy. They've inserted sticks you know, in their cervix, bicycle spokes, other sharp objects to end an unwanted pregnancy. So, you know, people will take really extreme measures in order to end the pregnancy. And it's really important to keep in mind that, you know, women have been ending pregnancies for thousands of years. And so when a woman is motivated and doesn't want to be pregnant, she'll do what it takes to end that pregnancy. Yeah, I think that's really true. You know, I feel like we often talk about that in the context of banning abortion that you may make it illegal, but you're just going to make it unsafe. You're not going to end it. No, and that is very clear from the experience in other countries, including also in the United States. I mean, the legal restrictions on abortion really change nothing around the practice of abortion. So what they do change is where women can go for safe care. What they do change is how providers are able to provide care, whether they can do that openly and safely and with the resources that are necessary, or whether they have to do that clandestinely in a hidden way. You know, So the legality of abortion has actually made very little impact in terms of the numbers of abortion that take place, but it makes a huge difference on the safety and the health and lives of women. So the U.S. government has a role to play in the way people access abortion overseas, and it's not necessarily a positive one. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what is the Helms Amendment? Absolutely, yeah. So the Helms Amendment is an amendment to the U.S. Foreign Assistance Act. And the U.S. Foreign Assistance Act was passed in 1961, and then it was amended by Jesse Helms in 1973. And the Helms Amendment states that U.S. government funds, foreign assistance funds, cannot be used for, and this is a quote, the performance of abortion as a method of family planning, end quote. So this language exists not only as a statute, as an amendment to the Foreign Assistance Act, but it's also reiterated year after year in the Department of State and Foreign Operations Appropriations Bill. So that has been in place now for 47 years. And I have to say that this is a bill that has a lot that IPASS as an organization is deeply connected to because we were started in 1973 when the Helms Amendment actually prevented the U.S. government from supporting the final design and distribution of the manual vacuum aspirator. The manual vacuum aspirator, or the MVA, is a medical device that's used for abortion and other procedures. And Jesse Helms is a senator from North Carolina, where IPASS is. So 
we have a really strong connection to the Helms Amendment because it really is rooted in our history. But it's been around for 47 years now, and it's become just normal. It's just part of the background. A lot of people don't even think about it anymore. I think a lot of everyday Americans don't even know that it still exists. Periodically, we have the gag rule, but we seldom really think about the Helms Amendment. It's kind of the hum in the background. So what does it mean for abortion care? So as written, the Helms Amendment allows for the provision of abortion information, counseling, and post-abortion care. And it even allows for abortion in cases of rape, incest, and if a woman's life is in danger. However, there is no clarity around the restrictions. And so it's actually been overinterpreted over the years, and it's been interpreted as a total ban on abortion-related services and information. So that has meant that U.S. foreign assistance funds have not been utilized in any way for the provision of abortion care, information, anything. And any organization or government that's getting U.S. foreign assistance funds does not work on abortion, even post-abortion care. And if I could just take a minute to explain what post-abortion care is, it's an emergency treatment for complications due to spontaneous abortions, whether they're spontaneous as in a miscarriage or an induced abortion. Post-abortion care also includes family planning, counseling, and services. So none of that is occurring as well with the Helms Amendment in place. So I think one place to maybe dig in a little bit is you mentioned the global gag rule. And I think this is one place we see like in reporting and often and sometimes even with members of Congress, Helms and gag get conflated or confused and they think gag is Helms and Helms is gag. And do you maybe just want to talk a quick bit about like, what's the difference? Really great point. Yes, they often get confused. Okay. So the global gag rule is an executive order, which is issued by Republican presidents since Ronald Reagan. It's generally repealed by Democratic presidents. The global gag rule restricts foreign non-governmental organizations that receive U.S. government funds from using their own private funds to engage in abortion-related work. So it's called the gag rule because it doesn't allow organizations to use their own money that they've raised from other non-U.S. sources for abortion care, referral, information, advocacy. Under the Trump administration, the global gag rule has been expanded, and it actually now applies to all global health funding by the U.S. government, which covers about $9 billion in aid. So that's the gag rule. The Helms Amendment, which, as I mentioned, is applied as a total ban on abortion-related services and information, the Helms Amendment applies to all U.S. funding for governments, nonprofit organizations, pooled funding mechanisms, and it includes humanitarian funding. It covers a total of nearly $40 billion of U.S. funding and aid. So the gag rule actually broadens restrictions that have already been in place under the 1973 Helms Amendment. So while the Helms Amendment restricts U.S.-funded programs, the gag rule restricts foreign organizations. So now that we have a better clarity on what exactly Helms is, how does this impact people who are in countries that receive U.S. aid? 
So I think it's really important to remember that unsafe abortion is one of the five leading causes of maternal mortality. So maternal mortality is when a woman dies in pregnancy or childbirth. And of the five causes of maternal mortality, causes related to unsafe abortion is the only one that's entirely preventable and has been essentially eliminated as a cause of maternal death in Europe and for the most part in the U.S. as well. So this is an area from a public health point of view that we can definitely tackle and address simply and easily. So by not allowing U.S. funds to be used in this manner, we are essentially contributing to the needless deaths and suffering of women overseas. The other really, I think, important point about the Helms Amendment is that it applies mostly and it impacts mostly black and brown women around the world. Right now in the United States we're and across the world, we're having conversations about racial justice and racism in, in our society and in other parts of the world as well. But when you think about it, at its root, the Helms Amendment is a fundamentally racist policy. Racial justice and reproductive justice are very closely entwined. Both you know, black and brown communities in the United States and overseas have been denied access to health care and denied access to services really due to racism and white supremacy. Yeah, that's absolutely true, because you have the similar amendment affecting domestic spending with the Hyde Amendment, not to get off track, but just it would be wrong to not mention it. Exactly. I was going to mention the Hyde Amendment as well. I mean, the Helms Amendment actively discriminates against poor black and brown women that live thousands of miles away that we don't see and who are not voters in the U.S., right? And every day that this policy exists, the U.S. is essentially tacitly contributing to maternal deaths and injuries from unsafe abortion. The Hyde Amendment, you're absolutely right, applies to the United States and it prohibits federal funding for Medicaid coverage for abortion, except in cases where the pregnancy is a result of rape or incest or when the pregnancy endangers life. But that policy also hinders abortion through discrimination because it denies women insurance coverage for safe, legal, necessary abortions because of their income level. We know that restrictions on Medicaid coverage are discriminatory against women of color, particularly Black and Latina women, and those are the women that are more likely to face financial hardships. And we also know that maternal mortality is three to four times higher among Black women in the U.S. than white women. So just like the Hyde Amendment, is a racist policy, so is the Helms Amendment. In the case of the Hyde Amendment, you know, we as voters, you know, can actually do something about it. But in the case of the Helms Amendment, we're actually going after really disenfranchised women and girls living, as I say, you know, thousands of miles away from us and who do not have any say in U.S. policy. Yeah. And I think all of this becomes even starker when you think about we're seeing all of these racial injustice health disparities being heightened with the COVID-19 pandemic. And so now you're talking about all of these restrictions on top of this pandemic that is disproportionately affecting black and brown people. Yeah, absolutely. I think COVID has really uncovered so many of these disparities, but truthfully, those disparities have always existed. They have just become visible to many people, but they have always existed. And Certainly in the public health community, race has been an incredibly important variable in determining health outcomes. 
So yeah, you're absolutely right that COVID has laid bare these disparities and made them incredibly visible to the rest of us. And unfortunately now to the rest of the world for the United States, you know, where the income inequality in the U.S. has become, I think, a national disgrace. And so that is really, I think, impacting, again, black and brown women, but also it plays out in the Helms Amendment. For example, the Helms Amendment really you know, it exaggerates the negative impact of COVID-19 on reproductive health. We know that women and girls in crisis settings are at an increased risk of unplanned and unwanted pregnancy because they're essentially living in a situation of societal disruption, just as we are right now. High levels and high incidence of sexual violence, a disruption of regular sources of contraception and care, lack of social support and family support, all of these things result in women and girls not being able to get the care that they need. And COVID is exaggerating this. So around the world, a recent report actually points out that a 10% decline in contraceptive use would leave an additional 49 million women without access to modern contraception because of the disruptions in supply chains and commodity supplies, et cetera. And we're finding that if 10% of safe abortions become unsafe because women can't access safe abortions, then there's going to be an increase of 3 million more unsafe abortions around the world and 1,000 more maternal deaths. So COVID is really making a bad situation even worse. Yeah, and that also just makes me think, you know, you talk about access to services. You see a lot of inequities, even just thinking of rural versus urban access, especially in the global south where, you know, a rural area, the closest clinic could be a couple hours away. And that really has detrimental impacts on people's ability to access healthcare. Absolutely. I mean, I think we actually underestimate the challenges that are involved in the physical barriers to accessing care that many women face. You know, we've heard about it in the U.S. in the recent court cases around abortion access where there's been descriptions of the hundreds of miles that women have to travel in order to access care in Texas, for example. But not long ago, I was in Nepal, and in Nepal, where you literally have the world's highest mountains, for a woman to access care walking through these incredibly tall mountains on roads that are really just footpaths, you know, it can take days for her to actually get to a clinic. Yeah, you know, I think just the physical barriers to care are so great that we underestimate how challenging it is for women to get there. And then when she gets there, let's say a woman does actually make it to a health clinic in a rural area, often those health clinics are not staffed regularly. So she can show up and no one will be there to help her. And if she does show up and someone is there, they may not have the supplies that they need to actually give her the care that she needs. Nepal is really interesting, actually, because Nepal is one of the places where there is legal abortion. And in fact, in all of the 70 plus provinces in Nepal, there are legal, safe abortion services and care available in a very poor country like Nepal. So that's a great overview of what the global landscape looks like right now, the impact the Helms Amendment is having. Now, I just wish there was something happening in the U.S. that could change all that. Well, I'm glad you asked. Yes, we are. I'm so excited. The bill that has just been introduced is called the Abortion is Healthcare Everywhere Act. It's being led by Representative Jan Schakowsky, and she'll be joined by a small group of co-sponsors in the House. The bill is the first time that there has been a discussion around 
striking the Helms language from the Foreign Assistance Act and replacing it with more proactive language around the necessity of having safe abortion. So the bill will include a statement of U.S. policy that I think is really important because it's proactive and positive. The language in the bill would state that it would be a policy of the U.S. government that safe abortion is a critical component of comprehensive maternal and reproductive health care and should be funded by the United States government, that safe abortion is to be made widely available and integrated with other types of health care, and that the U.S. government should work to end unsafe abortion and promote safe abortion services. So this bill would be a huge step to bringing the U.S. along with other countries. And that's, I think, a really important point, I think, to emphasize that the U.S. opinion and views around abortion are really out of step with the global community. We have been out of step with the global community really since the Helms Amendment was started, you know, 40 plus years ago. For example, in the last 25 years, over 40 countries have made abortion legal and expanded access to safe abortion care. In most of those cases, that effort was part of their efforts to reduce maternal mortality and promote human rights. So, for example, you know, in 2018, Ireland voted to decriminalize abortion. The Democratic Republic of Congo legalized abortion. Last year, South Korea declared its 66-year-old ban on abortion illegal. Rwanda legalized abortion. Mexico City has legalized abortion. The state of Oaxaca legalized abortion in its first 12 weeks. And this year, on March 2nd, Argentina's president proposed a bill to legalize abortion, which, if it's passed, would be a significant breakthrough for abortion rights in Latin America. So, you know, the U.S. is so out of step in its approach to abortion, not only for American women, but also in its approach to abortion care in its international aid effort. So this bill would actually help bring us in line with other countries around the world. In 2017, a number of countries actually stepped up their pledge and their advocacy for the inclusion of safe abortion in all aspects of maternal health care. We had a campaign called She Decides that really mobilized resources and global commitment. So countries from Canada, Denmark, Finland, France, Iceland, Luxembourg, New Zealand, the Netherlands, you get the picture, a lot of different countries signed on, but the U.S. did not. So we are very isolated in our view about abortion. Most countries in the world think of abortion care as kind of an essential part of public health, but also essential for human rights. So our views are very backwards. Yeah, I think this bill could be really big for people in the global south. So let's talk a little bit about what it would mean if this were to pass. If it were to pass, it would mean that, obviously, the funding that the U.S. government allocates could be used for safe abortion care, including the purchasing of commodities and supplies for abortion care. So let me give you, you know, a little bit of an example of what that would look like in a real-world setting. I'm sure you've heard about the Rohingya refugee crisis in Bangladesh, where we now have a million refugees that fled Burma into Bangladesh. U.S. assistance for health care there is a very large part of the health budget that is being utilized to provide care for those refugees. In fact, the U.S. government is the largest humanitarian contributor to the Rohingya crisis and is providing $820 million for that effort. But not a cent of that is going towards safe abortion care. And I want to add that 
in Bangladesh, abortion is legal. So it can be legally provided. And in fact, the work of IPATH and partners on the ground, we are working with the Bangladesh government to provide safe abortion care to Rohingya refugees in that setting. The bill to repeal the Helms Amendment would allow U.S. government funds in that setting to help the women and girls who need access to safe abortion care. You know, many of the refugees that fled Burma were young women. Many of them experienced horrific violence, include sexual violence. I've read reports where nearly half of the women that fled Burma into Bangladesh experienced violence of some sort. And many of those women need access to abortion and contraception. So the repeal of the Helms Amendment would allow us to finally meet the comprehensive reproductive health needs of those women and so many more women around the world. So this is really exciting. And I'm sure the listeners are really excited to hear that there is positive legislation that is being introduced. So what can they do? What steps can listeners take to help make this a reality? So first of all, of course, listeners can work for justice for all people. Think about how they can demonstrate their own concern and care about human rights and how the United States could be a leader in that. So, you know, whether that's through advocacy, we've had a huge opportunity for activism in the United States over the last several months. That opportunity continues. Support reproductive justice organizations, work for reproductive justice organizations, work for justice, period. Listeners can contact their representative and urge them to support the bill. Again, the bill is called the Abortion is Healthcare Everywhere Act, and it is being led by Representative Jan Schakowsky and other co-sponsors in the House. So they can contact their representative and urge them to support the bill. We would really invite listeners to join our social media campaign by following IPASS, and our Twitter handle is at IPASSorg, and to use the hashtag RepealHelms. We are doing a lot of media outreach and advocacy on that, and we would really appreciate amplifying that message and letting, you know, letting people know that this bill is out there. We don't have to be passive. We can actually change this. And listeners, of course, can continue to educate themselves and learn more about it. They could go to this website called www.repealhelms.org to learn more about the bill and to learn more about advocacy efforts. You know, I think particularly for progressive Americans who care about reproductive justice, these four years under this administration has felt really demoralizing and difficult. So I think when we have opportunities like we have with this bill to do something proactive, to do something positive, to do something to create the world that we want to live in, we all must seize that opportunity and make the most of it. I think that's a great place to stop. And thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. I look forward to hearing. Well, I, I actually hate hearing myself talk. So. <laughs> I mean, same. <laughs> so I can't say I'll listen to it, but I hope other people do. <laughs> okay, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this week's special bonus episode. We'll be back next Tuesday with a regularly scheduled episode. So I will talk to you all then. But in the meantime, feel free, as always, to reach out to us on social media. We're at Repros Fight Back on Facebook and Twitter and Repros FB on Instagram. And you are always free to email me at Jenny at ReprosFightBack.com. Otherwise, I will see you all next Tuesday. Thanks. For more information, including show notes from this episode and previous episodes, 
please visit us at our website at reprosefightback.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Repros Fight Back and on Instagram at Repros FB. If you like our show, please help others find it by sharing it with your friends and please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.